this is part three of this podcast, episode four, The Evil Moors Murderers Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Part one of this episode covered the killers Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, their lives and their backgrounds. Part two of this episode covered the five victims of the Moors Murderers. The victims were Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans. All of the murders were carried out between July of 1963 and October of 1965. The last episode concluded at the point of which David Smith, who was Myra Hindley's brother-in-law, had witnessed the murder of Edward Evans. David Smith had run all of the way home to his flat and was violently sick because of what he had just witnessed. Maureen Smith, David's wife, who was also Myra Hindley's sister, soon realised that something dreadful had occurred. It was the early hours of the morning at this point on now the 7th of October of 1965. David Smith told his wife what he had just witnessed, which obviously was a shock to her. They both knew that they now had to phone the police. They did not have a telephone at their flat, so they decided to wait until it was starting to get light so that they could go and use the phone in the street. David Smith was still worried that Ian Brady was going to try and kill him, so that's why they decided to wait a few hours before leaving their flat. It was just after 6am when the couple left their flat. They made their way to the nearest phone box. David Smith took a screwdriver with him for protection, just in case Ian Brady was waiting for them. At first, the police officer taking the call did not believe David Smith. He thought he was playing a joke on him and David was still in a state of shock and stuttering when trying to get his words out. Eventually, however, the officer was convinced enough to go and pick the couple up from outside the phone box and to take them back to the local police station. Once more information was obtained from David Smith, Superintendent Bob Talbot of the Staley Bridge Police Division went to the address. He was accompanied by a detective sergeant because David Smith had mentioned that Ian Brady had often discussed guns. The officers wanted to take precautions. Bob Talbot borrowed a bread man's overalls to wear over his uniform so that whoever was in the house was not forewarned about the visit. Superintendent Bob Talbot then knocked on the front door of the house where Ian Brady and Myra Hindley lived. Myra opened the door and was thrown off guard by the police officers disguised as the bread man. Superintendent Bob Talbot introduced himself and Myra led the way into the front room where Ian Brady was laying on a makeshift bed. By this time, other police officers were also entering the house. Both Ian and Myra denied that a murder had taken place the night before. The police officers started to search the house, but the door to the spare room was locked. The police demanded that Myra gave them the key, which she reluctantly did. Once the police entered the room, they noticed the body of Edward Evans straight away. The pair had crudely tried to wrap the body up in old blankets but hadn't fooled anyone. Once the body was discovered, Ian Brady was arrested on the suspicion of murder. However, Myra Hindley at this point was not arrested. Initially, Ian Brady told the police that Edward and him had just got into a fight and that it had got horribly out of hand. Although Myra Hindley was not arrested at this point, she wanted to go to the police station. She took her dog with her. Myra also claimed that it had all been an accident. Although Myra Hindley was still free, she was not able to go back inside the house and had to stay with relatives. Myra's grandmother had also had to move out and she had also gone to stay with relatives. 
Once Edward Evans's body had been removed to the mortuary and cleaned up, Mrs Evans, Edward's mother, identified it as being her son. She had only seen him the evening before at home, where he was getting ready to go out and now she was looking down on his body. She was distraught and could not understand how it had happened. Ian Brady was questioned over the next few days and remanded in custody. He continued to say that it was a fight that had just got out of hand. Myra Hindley, although not under arrest, kept the same story about what had actually happened to Edward Evans. Meanwhile, the police were carrying out searches at the house and the van that Myra owned. The police were also speaking to their employers at Millwoods. Most people could not believe what had happened. The true horror was not yet known. The fact that Edward Evans was their fifth victim, and there was nothing accidental about any of it, would soon come to light. Whilst the police were searching the house, they found a notebook with the name John Kilbride written in it, amongst other names of famous people. This was really this really stood out to the police officers investigating the case because it seemed too random to insert the name of a missing boy into a list of famous people unless you had knowledge of the boy's disappearance. Also during the search, although at first not discovered, it was only when a very keen detective decided to take another look that a left luggage ticket was found. It was found in the spine of a prayer book that belonged to Myra Hindley. This find would be hugely significant and would help to put away Ian Brady and Myra Hindley for the rest of their lives. It would also help with the recovery of another three bodies, but sadly one body, that of Keith Bennett, was never found. The investigators looked through the notebook further and noticed that there were a lot of what looked like codes or initials or abbreviations that could mean something to the case if they could decipher them. They also collected the suitcases from the left luggage, which had been stored at the local train station. The whole case was now coming together, and David Smith was also telling them about conversations that he'd had with Ian Brady, Brady previously, to do with burying bodies on the Saddleworth Moors, and also that he'd killed children. Once the suitcases were opened, a lot of evidence was found. There were photographs of Ian and Myra on the Saddleworth Moors. There was also naked photographs of a little girl and a strange audio recording, which all needed to be gone through properly. The audio in particular would leave the investigating officers in tears, and it was the recording that Ian and Myra had made of the torture and murder of little Leslie Ann Downey just under a year before. The photographs of the naked girl were confirmed to be that of Leslie Ann Downey as well. The police needed confirmation of the voice of the little girl on the audio. They had already identified Ian and Myra's voices, but needed to have someone to identify the other voice. This horrific task was left to Leslie Ann's mother. She had to listen to the recording, not all of it, fortunately, but enough to be able to say that it was her daughter on the recording. She was able to confirm that it was Leslie Ann. That must have been horrendous to have to listen to your daughter calling out for you and telling the people who were hurting her to stop and that she was going to tell, tell on them. You just can't imagine what that must have been like to, to hear. It 
It was now apparent that there were other victims and that Myra Hindley was also involved. She was arrested on the 11th of October of 1965, over four days after Ian Brady had been arrested. At this point, Ian Brady was charged with the murder of Edward Evans and now Myra Hindley was charged in connection with the murder as well. Myra Hindley was remanded in custody at this point. As the investigation into the evidence that had been uncovered continued, Ian Brady denied any further crimes and also denied that Myra Hindley had had anything to do with Edward Evans's murder. They both claimed that David Smith had been involved. No charges were ever brought against David Smith, however, and he continued to help the police with their investigations. David Smith as well as his wife Maureen, would also testify against the two killers when the trial came to court. So far, the police had only recovered the body of Edward Evans, but this was all about to change. The detectives working on the case looked more closely at some of the other photographs that Ian Brady had taken. The suspicion was that the photographs could in some way be a record or even a marker of where other victims were buried. It was determined that Saddleworth Moor was a popular place for the couple and it had already come up in conversation and interviews with David Smith. Once some of the photos were analysed, they called in experts to try and determine the locations. A search of Saddleworth Moor began shortly after Myra Hindley had been arrested. The police officers involved would use long sticks which they would poke into the ground and if they smelt anything suspicious it would then be looked at more thoroughly. The moors is a huge area and it would take many days but they did eventually get a breakthrough. Leslie Ann Downey's body was found on the moors during the afternoon of the 16th of October of 1965. Her clothing was also buried with her and also the white bees that her brother Terry had given her on the day that she disappeared. John Kilbride's body was found about five days after Leslie Ann's body had been found. The detectives had worked out the location by using some of the photographs that Ian Brady had taken of Myra Hindley who was holding the dog at the time. The photos showed Myra appearing to look at the ground with a slight smile. They found the location of where the photos had been taken by using the codes and abbreviations that Ian had written down in the notebook. John Kilbride's body had been buried fully clothed apart from his shoes, which were on top of his body. The police continued to search the moors further, hoping to recover the bodies of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. The police had now decided that in all probability, the two missing children were also victims of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. However, they were unable to find the bodies and had to abandon the search. As well as the charges against them in relation to the murder of Edward Evans, the couple were now facing additional charges. Myra's charge against Edward Evans was changed to murder. Ian Brady was also charged with the murder of John Kilbride and Leslie Ann Downey. Myra Hindley was charged with the murder of Leslie Ann Downey and with being an accessory in the John Kilbride murder. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley stood trial at Chester Court on the 19th of April of 1966. The trial ended on the 6th of May of 1966. They both pleaded not guilty to all of the charges. David and Maureen Smith took to the witness box to give their evidence. There was so much evidence against Myra Hindley and Ian Brady that it came as no surprise when the jury returned the verdict of guilty on all charges. 
Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were sentenced to life imprisonment. During the trial, Ian Brady had insisted that Myra Hindley was innocent and he maintained that for many years. They were tried together and then sent off to separate prisons. They would never see each other again. Experts have tried to say that Myra was under Ian's influence and that because she was so infatuated with him, she went along with it. I don't think that many people really believe that. When the couple began their killing spree, they were both in their 20s. After the trial, Ian Brady was sent to Durham Prison where he asked to live in solitary confinement. He would go on to spend 19 years in mainstream prisons until he was diagnosed as a psychopath in November of 1985. He was then sent to the high security Park Lane Hospital. Ian Brady has always said that he does not want to be released. The judge at the trial had recommended that his life sentence should mean life and successive Home Secretaries have agreed with that decision. Ian Brady has often corresponded with people outside of prison, including Lord Longford, who was a politician at the time and remained politically active throughout his life. He was known for supporting social outcasts as well as unpopular cases. He had a keen interest in prison reform as well. He would regularly visit prisons in England. He advocated for rehabilitation in prisons and had helped create the parole system which had come into place when the death penalty was abolished. Ian would also sometimes write to journalists. Ian Brady used to complain a lot about the conditions at the prison or the hospital that he was being kept in at the time. In 1999, his right wrist was broken and Ian Brady went on to claim that it had happened because of an hour-long unprovoked attack by the staff. He went on hunger strike at this point as a protest, but because he was being treated for a mental disorder under the Mental Health Act of 1983, the staff were allowed to force feed him, which they wouldn't have been able to do in a normal prison. He fought to change this, but he was refused the right to starve himself to death. Ian Brady, while living in another hospital prison called Ashworth, wrote a book called The Gates of Janus. It was published by an underground publisher in the US, but it was not allowed to be released in certain countries, including the UK. In this book, Ian Brady gave some analysis of serial murders and of specific serial killers. There was outrage at the time. This was 2001. The parents of the murdered children were devastated. Ian Brady did finally confess to the murders that he had committed and also spoke about Myra Hindley's part, which had changed from the trial. It was in 1985 that Ian Brady allegedly spoke to a journalist who worked for a Sunday newspaper and confessed that he had in fact killed Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. He was always suspected of carrying out the murders. Most people assumed that they were dead by now. The cases into their disappearance were opened. Detective Chief Superintendent Peter Topping headed up the new investigation. The two disappearances had always been linked because of the similarities with the three cases that had already been proven in a court of law to have been carried out by Ian Brady and his then-girlfriend, Myra Hindley. Detective Chief Superintendent Peter Topping visited Ian Brady. He was being held at Gartree Prison at this point, but was met with a brick wall in relation to Ian Brady confessing. Nevertheless, the police officer decided to carry out 
searches on Saddleworth Moor, using once again the photographs that the couple had taken. The police hoped that clues from the photos would help them locate the bodies, just as it had in John Kilbride's case previously. The police also questioned Myra Hindley. She did not admit any involvement in the murders at this point. She did, however, offer to help the police and they showed her photographs of places that were of great interest to Ian Brady at the time. She did this by looking at all of the photographs that the police had and also the maps of the area. She did make two visits to the moors to help assist the police. Nothing was found at this time. She did confess a year or so later to her involvement in all five of the murders. Detective Chief Superintendent Topping listened to her lengthy confession. He said later that she always placed herself away from the actual killing. She was either in the car or in the kitchen or in the bathroom, anywhere but actually with the victim at the time. That was all down to Ian Brady, according to her anyway. Myra Hindley went to the moors again in March of 1987. She confirmed that the areas that the police were already searching were correct. She could not, however, locate either grave. The police would continue to spend over 100 days of searching for Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett's bodies. And on the 1st of July of 1987, they found Pauline's body. It was only a hundred yards from where Leslie Ann Downey's body had been found over 20 years earlier. At least now the relatives of the young girl could bury her and they finally knew what had happened to her all of those years ago. The police continued to search the moors in the hope that they would also find Keith Bennett's body. Ian Brady even went up on the moors but mentally and physically he was very frail and unable or unwilling to help. Eventually, the police had no choice but to stop searching. This upset Keith Bennett's family, in particular his mother Winnie. The official search of Saddleworth Moor was called off on the 24th of August of 1987. Despite the fact that Ian Brady and Myra Hindley had confessed to the two additional murders, the Director of Public Prosecutions decided not to go through with another trial, which would also have been very expensive. It was felt that because the murderers were already behind bars and would never be released, it was not worth doing. Ian Brady would indeed die in prison. He died on the 15th of May of 2017 at the age of 79. Myra Hindley's time in prison was much more eventful than her former boyfriend's. When Myra was handed her life sentence in 1966, she was sent to Holloway Prison, a women's prison in London. She initially kept in contact via letters with Ian Brady and they corresponded frequently. However, Myra soon began having lesbian relationships within prison and eventually cut off all ties with her former partner in crime. Some people thought that it could have been a move to try and distance herself from the crimes that they had been convicted of because she was up until the mid-80s anyway, always denying her involvement with any of the murders. Myra Hindley studied with the Open University to obtain a degree in humanities while serving her life sentence. Myra would use her lesbian relationships in order to manipulate the other person as well as to gain protection for herself from the other more hostile prisoners. A few years into her sentence, she started a relationship with a prison officer called Pat Cairns. 
they would use the prison chapel to conduct some of their meetings or sometimes in Myra's cell with a lookout who would warn them if another officer was approaching. Myra and her new girlfriend came up with a plan to help her break out of prison so that the pair could be together abroad somewhere. Myra had managed to actually change her surname to Spencer by depot whilst in prison. This was so that getting identification would be so much easier. Also, Pat Cairns arranged to for someone to take an impression of the prison keys and they were given to a locksmith who was to sort it out for them. Luckily, he had other ideas and went to the police instead. Special Branch became involved and dealt with the situation. Pat Cairns was tried along with Myra Hindley at the Old Bailey and they were both found guilty, which made no difference to Myra's sentence, but the ex-prison officer was put away for six years. Myra ended up being moved to Durham Prison, which was considered to be a much harder prison than Holloway. This was her punishment. Lord Longfield became involved in Myra's life. He was considered by many to be a bit eccentric. Myra needed support, however, because she was going to apply for parole despite what the judge and successive Home Secretaries had said at the time that she would never be released. One way she was told that parole might be possible now would be to confess to the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett and to help with locating their bodies. Myra was reluctant at first because she'd always maintained her innocence. Also, she had convinced so many of her supporters that she was innocent of all crimes and she would now have to admit she lied to them. Once Pauline Reed's body was found, a lot of her support fell away and she was now never likely to be paroled. There was a huge public outcry over the thought that Myra Hindley might get out of jail at some point and newspapers would now start running a lot of stories about her trying to get parole, which meant it would now be very unlikely for it to happen. It also transpired that the governess at the prison where Myra Hindley was being held escorted her out of the prison for a day release. This move was condemned by the media. The public were outraged when they found out about this. It would seem to them sometimes that Myra was often given special treatment and treated more like a celebrity rather than a criminal, by some people anyway. They just seemed to get caught up in her notoriety. Myra Hindley never gained her freedom. She had had bad health over many years and she died on the 15th of November of 2002 at the age of 60. I found this case interesting but also very upsetting. How could two people cause so much heartache to so many families without caring about anybody but themselves? Myra seemingly was close to her family but yet she put them at risk and ended up ruining their lives as well. Most people at the time of the arrests of Ian and Myra were so shocked that a woman could be involved in the murder of small children. Maybe that's why Myra had so many prison visitors and campaigners because it was thought she had only been involved because of her relationship with Ian Brady. Nowadays I think people are a bit more aware of the capabilities of both men and women. She always had a choice and she chose to help kill small children as well as teenagers and at no time did she try and hand herself in. She also drove many of the children to their final destination on the Saddleworth Moor. I personally believe that although Myra Hindley may not have been a killer if she hadn't met Ian Brady, she still actually got a thrill out of it and enjoyed carrying out the murders. She was usually the one that would approach the child, knowing that they would be more likely to go with her than a man. 
she totally knew what she was doing. She was 23 years old at the time of her, her arrest, which is young, but most people know what they are doing and know that killing a child or killing anybody is not okay. I believe that Ian Brady would have probably ended up being a killer anyway, whether he'd met Myra or not. Many people have said in the past, and it's been reported in the media, that at least Ian Brady had the decency to go mad, unlike Myra Hindley, who just carried on manipulating people and and also manipulating the system. She'd also denied any involvement with the murders, but only confessed because she thought it would help her with her eventually being released from prison on parole. When Myra died, the undertakers in the area initially refused to bury her. One did so eventually, but it just shows you the opinion of the public about child murderers, and especially such a notorious one such as Myra Hindley. Keith Bennett has still not been given a decent burial, and his mother died without being able to lay him to rest. The other families were obviously affected badly by the tragic events, and a few siblings vowed to kill Myra Hindley if she was ever released from prison. Some of the fathers and stepfathers of the victims were viewed with suspicion before Ian and Myra were caught as well. And poor Leslie Ann Downey's mother had to listen to a recording of her daughter being murdered, which must have been horrendous. Edward Evans's family stayed out of the media. They had always preferred to deal with what had happened to Edward privately, which is understandable. The most vocal mother was always Winnie Johnson, and the grief that she went through must have been awful. She had a few false hopes when the police were searching the moors and although she was thankful that the other parents got their children back, she was devastated for the rest of her life that she was unable to have Keith's remains buried. David Smith also suffered. Some people in the area did not believe that he was innocent and he got into a lot of trouble and also a lot of fights. His marriage to Maureen produced three sons, but ultimately they broke up. David remarried and went on to have a daughter and moved away to live in Ireland with his new wife, his sons and his daughter. Maureen remarried but was unable to look after her sons properly. She died in 1980 from a brain hemorrhage. The evil Moors murderers ruined a lot of lives and left a lot of devastation in their wake. This is the final part of this podcast. The credits go to Wikipedia, Crimes That Shook Britain, Guardian Newspaper and the book by Emily Williams called Beyond Belief. Thank you. (laughs) 